0: Come on in and grab a seat and uh, we will transition here and get going. We do have a few announcements we want to share with everyone uh, before we get uh, into God's Word. But I just want to extend a welcome to everyone who is here this morning, who has gathered as as summer is kind of uh, kicked into full swing. The kids are out of school and it's a beautiful morning, a morning in which it's pretty easy to go, hey, I just maybe want to go have my own worship service and just enjoy the day, but I'm, I'm thankful and glad that God has brought you here to fellowship, to worship together with us in this place. And so I uh, just want to extend that welcome. If you don't know me, my name is Rich. I'm one of the pastors here. It's my joy to serve uh, Christ within this, this ministry and within this church. Um, if you didn't get a bulletin when you came in, uh, sorry, you're fresh out of luck. Normally we would have some extras, but we ran out. And so uh, if you didn't get a bulletin, reach over to your neighbor and uh, peek off of theirs. But uh, we have just a few announcements I want to share with you all uh, this morning as we get going. But if you're new with us today, maybe checking us out or have, have kind of wandered in here, we just want to uh, say welcome to you. We are a simple people who love the gospel, who've been radically changed by the life of Jesus. And so we are a people, as we say in our tagline of love, live legacy, we, we feel that we are called first and foremost to be a people that loves God, that worships God from our whole heart. And then we're called to live in gospel community as it is God who has connected us together as we are united to Christ. We are therefore united to each other, into this fellowship. And so we live in in community together where we live life together, and then ultimately we have this calling to leave a legacy of followers of Jesus. So we're committed to discipleship, to, to pouring into each other's lives, to see each other formed into the image of Christ. And that's that's our passion and that is our heart here. So if you're new here, we welcome you and we'd encourage you to continue to get to know us here. And one of the ways in which you can continue to kind of explore what it means to be a part of this church is by taking our belong class. And uh, that's going to happen on June 9th and 16th. So that's going to be on the Sunday morning just before the gathering gets going. So uh, from 8 o'clock to 9.45 on Sunday morning, on June 9th and 16th, we will have this Belong class. And it's a time for us as pastors to get to know you, to be able to share our, our our vision for what God is doing throughout this church, some key and core convictions that we hold to, and allow you to ask questions, to be able to understand if this is the place that God has called you to commit to, to belong and to join in as, as a part of this fellowship. So I'd encourage you to uh, connect with the Belong class. You can find that on our website, um, thecrossingfc.org, uh, under the events tab. You can sign up through that. We also have Man School, which is just a gathering of the Men of the Crossing uh, uh, that kind of happens monthly for us to connect uh, within relationships that we may not normally uh, get to experience, so we get a broader connection with others throughout the body. So that's going to happen this Tuesday, June 4th at 6.30 p.m. at Spring Canyon Park. It is B Y O M. Bring your own meat, and so uh, bring something to grill. We'll have we'll have charcoal grills going there for everybody, and we'll we will plan to gather at kind of the central pavilion, kind of across from the dog park, if you're familiar with uh, that area. So bring your bring your spike ball nets, bring your uh, cornhole, any other games and whatnot. We'll just have a, have a great time of hanging out, fellowshipping together uh, as men on Tuesday evening. Ladies of the Crossing, kind of uh, the other side of of that for the for the women here on June 18th, there will be an evening hike. And so uh, the location will be determined. More information to come on that, but uh, kind of mark that on your calendar for June 18th for the for the ladies here. And one announcement we have is that uh, one thing that, that uh, opportunity to serve is through our mowing crew here. And so uh, Dustin Swindler is still uh, maybe uh, open to having a couple more hands that would help out maybe a few times this summer, just uh, take care of cutting the grass and taking care of the property here. So if you're interested in that, uh, please see Dustin Swindler. Uh, one other thing we've been announcing is uh, this summer expense fund that we opened up. Uh, normally we don't do these type of things, but uh, there are some specific needs that we have around the building, some improvements that we want to make to take care of this facility. So we are trying to raise a little extra money just so that we can take care of those things and address those, and God is, is graciously providing. And so we're we're about halfway there with uh, what we're looking to raise there, so uh, you can give online uh, towards that if uh, God leads you in that. And then uh, one other great announcement that we have is uh, another new one added to, uh, to the church here with uh, uh, Nicole and Nate Brown giving birth to Owen Thomas just about a week or so ago. So if you guys want to stand up. There he is. So congratulations to you two. So well, with that, I'll invite you all to turn in your Bibles to uh, the gospel written by Matthew. So Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to be. As many of you know, we are walking through the Sermon on the Mount this summer. So we're spending the summer on the Mount. And so last week, Daniel kind of introduced things. And so today we're going to dive into uh, this common section known as the Beatitudes. So if you would all stand with me and give attention to the reading of God's Word this morning. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Our great God, we gather as your people, formed by your plan and purpose to redeem a people for yourself, people who would love you, who would enter into relationship with you, who would display your name in this world. And oh, how we fall short of that, that calling, and yet you are faithful to us, you are faithful to continue to work to transform us and shape us into the image of Christ. And as we look into these attributes that Jesus calls us to, I pray that you would continue to affect that change in our lives, that we would be those who belong to another kingdom, who have been united to you, who connect to a different world. So I pray that you would open up our eyes, give us eyes to see things that we wouldn't actually see if it wasn't for you. I pray that your word would go forth this morning, and that you would change us by it, and draw our hearts to know and worship you. More truly. We ask these things in the glorious name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. You can all have a seat. Have you ever looked at something and then, from a change in perspective or looking at it differently, seen something totally different that you didn't think was there? One of the things that fascinated me as a kid was uh, these 3D pictures that became pretty popular throughout, I think, maybe the 90s is when they kind of hit their high. Um, sometimes called magic eye. You guys with me? So anybody not aware of what I'm talking about? Maybe a few. I actually have a picture uh, to show and display one of these. You see this? So magic eye, extra points, if anybody can actually see the image in there. An, eh. <laughs> An anchovy. <laughs> An anchovy, Okay. That's a, that's a good guess, good Jesus, that's a great guess, so, so these, uh, these magic eye pictures, actually they have, a, they have a technical name called stereograms, and not because you stare at them, but uh, I, don't, I don't know exactly what that comes from, but they're stereograms, and uh, it's this, this kind of collage of colors and all these different things, and I'm not sure how it works, these patterns come together, but if you, if you stare long enough, and you cross your eyes, and suddenly you should be able to see an image that appears in the middle in this 3D kind of hidden world, and I remember as a kid that initially when these things came out and they were going around, I could never get into it. Who's with me? Who's with me? Who, who struggles to see into these things? As a kid, I remember staring and staring. My, my friends would make fun of me because I couldn't see it. Then I realized last night as I, I was like showing my wife one, she couldn't see into it. So I was making fun of her because she couldn't see it. So, but... Uh, But, but these things were, were were fascinating and it's, it's this weird thing. It's like, how did they do that? But, but eventually as I, as I stared and I stared and I, I looked and I tried different techniques, eventually I figured it out. And I was able to, I was able to, able to look and to be able to see in and see this image that was there. And it's amazing when you actually see it. So, uh, has anybody gotten into this one? Nope. Yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't get to either. On when it's on the screen, it's too big or whatever. But uh, if if you were able to get into there, you'd see a dragon. Or if you're up on your Pokemon, it's Charizard. So I put that in there for my kids. But uh, you guys can go ahead and take that down. But uh, but uh, w- once you finally see it, you're like, how do they do that? It's amazing. This, this this image that's that's hidden in there. And one technique that that often will work is if you, if you take it and you hold it really close to your face, and then you slowly kind of. Pull it back because that kind of forces you to cross your eyes, and you pull it back, and eventually maybe it'll show up, and you can, and you can see it. But uh, but the thing is that about these these images, these magic eye pictures, is that you can't just look at the picture and see the image. It's hidden from our natural vision. It requires that we that we change the way that we look at it. You have to cross your eyes and, and almost work your way past the initial blur, look, look past what you initially see through this mess of colors. And then there's this moment where, boom, it just comes into clarity. And you can, you could see this image, whatever it is in there. And I believe that the more that I have looked at, the more that I continue to stare at these blessing statements, these beatitudes, as they are traditionally known, I think that they're kind of like those pictures. At first look, it seems like this kind of beautiful, creative collection of, of statements. But when you begin to say, what exactly is this? What does this mean? What do I, what do, I do with these things? And I think that Jesus, in, in, in the start of the Sermon on the Mount, he's telling us that in order to see into his kingdom, we need to start looking at things from a different perspective. We can't use our natural vision to see his kingdom. And in these statements, he's calling us to, to look at things differently, to be surprised by the powerful reversal that he brings to our way of viewing the world. And so as we, as we walk through these Beatitudes this morning, I'm not going to do like a normal three-point sermon, as these are kind of, a, 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 kind of come to us as a whole. So what I want to do differently this morning is just kind of walk through a series of questions that I think we need to ask about a text such as this. So I want to walk us through these series of questions today and help us to gain some insight on what Jesus is doing through this section of Scripture. So the first question that we need to ask is simply, what is the setting? What is the setting for this? And this is what Daniel really tried to and set us up nicely last week to dive into this. And what Daniel showed us is that that this is one of five discourse or teaching sections found in Matthew's gospel that really create the structure of of Matthew's gospel. Daniel also helped show show us that throughout the book, this overarching theme is this kingdom of heaven. Back in chapter 4, verse 17, it says that from this time on, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so that's a key passage that sets the foundation for Jesus' ministry. And so in his teaching, he's announcing the kingdom and he's, he's describing its character. So he says he goes on and he, he proclaims the kingdom, and then we get to see him in this teaching fleshing that out for us. And chapter 5 opens with this statement that would not be lost on the original audience as they, heard, as, as they, as they read this. See, Jesus goes up on a mountain... And he sits down, probably outside in the mountainous region outside of Galilee. We don't necessarily know where it is. There's a traditional site, but we don't really know. But he goes out onto this, this elevated mountainous area outside of Galilee, likely. And he sits down with his disciples, and he begins to speak about the kingdom. And as Daniel showed us last week, what Matthew is doing in his gospel is presenting and showing that Jesus is another Moses. He's a better Moses. As Moses in the Old Testament went up on the mountain... To receive God's revelation and deliver it to the people, we see now Jesus ascending a mountain and delivering to these followers this message about His kingdom and its teachings. It says that His audience is His disciples. So the question comes to us, well, who, who, who is this meant for? Is this meant for those following Him, kind of believers, or is it meant for kind of everybody? And, uh, as, as, as we read the end of chapter four, remember who was gathered, who was described in this section. And this is important because it's, it's the afflicted, it's the diseased, it says the demon possessed. It's great crowds from all over who are gathering, who are, who are beginning to follow Jesus. And the, the designation of the twelve disciples doesn't really occur in Matthew until chapter 10. And then at the end of the sermon, at Matthew 7, verse 28, it says that the crowds were astonished. So the crowds are there the whole time. So, so yes, in a sense, it's for His specific disciples. Those are beginning to follow Him. But really, what He's offering is this invitation to the crowds as well. Jesus is speaking to the outcasts of society, the poor, the needy, the homeless, the beggars, the everyday people. And it's important to keep that in mind Because it helps us grasp the significance here when we see who is hearing these words. So that's our setting. Jesus on this mountain teaching the crowds about this kingdom that he is announcing. So the question is, do we see ourselves in that crowd? Do you see yourself there? Place yourself there sitting with the everyday, the afflicted, the struggling that Jesus is, is speaking to us. So the next question then that we have to ask is, what is a beatitude? What's a beatitude? It's really the only time we really use this word. It's ultimately rooted in the, the Latin word beatis, which speaks of, of, of being happy or a state of, of, of fullness. But what do we do with these, these short, pithy statements that kind of sound lovely, but don't really kind of connect sometimes? The reality is that they, they sound nice and almost poetic at first, but when you really think about them, they don't often maybe make full sense. Like, why are people who cry blessed? Like, that's kind of weird, right? Crying and tears aren't exactly a virtue that we uphold. We try to kind of hide that from people, right? Meekness, doesn't that sound a whole lot more like weakness? It says, blessed are those who are persecuted, so taking a beating is a good thing. Okay, Jesus, whatever. Some of the other things here are nice things to maybe aspire to, like peacemaking and mercy and purity of heart. But what does it mean to, to be blessed in any of those things? And what, what's this with this word blessed and blessing? Like that's a kind of a Christian junk drawer term, if there ever was one, right? What do we even mean by that? So yeah, this really familiar passage becomes rather vague and cryptic upon deeper inspection. So how do we begin to piece this together? How should we understand what these beatitudes are? And I think one place that we must start is with this word blessed. The Greek word here is makarios. But how should we translate it is is the question. You know, it's often translated as blessed as in this situation. Other translations will use the word happy. Uh, but most kind of sense that it's just kind of too shallow of a term to kind of bear the weight of what this word is trying to convey. And it can be a challenge to find the right word, and I think that sometimes we get confused because of what happens throughout the Old Testament. And what happens is that there's actually two different Hebrew words that have been translated with the same English word as Blessed. And so sometimes their meanings get conflated or kind of confused and, and brought together and we get kind of mixed up a little bit. And so we've got to kind of unpack this. You know, we've seen this word a lot, right, as we've walked through the book of Genesis, right? We've seen we've seen blessing all over the place. We see it first in, in Genesis 1 where after creating Adam and Eve, God says that He, he God, God blessed them and sent them into this world to be His representatives. Then later on when, with Abraham, He says, I will bless you, and so that you, all the nations of the earth, will be blessed. And we keep following the blessing of God upon the covenant p- family. And so, so we get this blessing here. You get a blessing. You get a blessing. Everybody gets a blessing. And it just kind of expands out into into this just kind of empty idea that we miss. But when we read those statements in, early in Genesis, we, we get this sense of of God bestowing divine favor. So there's a sense that blessing is God bestowing favor and and, and goodness and well-being. A prosperous life on certain individuals. And so the, the Hebrew word there is barak. But there's another word that often gets translated as blessed, ashar. And ashar shows up in a passage like Psalm chapter 1. If you're familiar with that, what does it say? It says, blessed is the man who what? Who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, but rather the one who is blessed is the one who delights in God's law. So what is Psalm 1 saying in that passage? It's not saying that those who don't hang out with sinners but read their Bibles receive God's favor, like that, 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 that somehow we, we earn God's favor by just doing this, this right thing. That's not what someone is ultimately saying. By using Ashar in this section, he's actually saying it's, it's those who seek God's law and not the ways of the wicked. It's that pathway of life. It's in those and down that path that you will find a state of blessedness. Or a state of happiness. You want to be happy? Then follow this way of life. That's what Psalm one is getting at. And it's that type of blessing statement that we see in Psalm one and throughout the Psalms that Jesus is actually picking up in these Beatitudes. And so this is a common kind of way of talking from teachers and rabbis and different different literature in the ancient Near East is these these statements of blessing. Where is the blessed life found? How do we find fulfillment? How do we find wholeness? And so Jesus' statements are are, are tracking in that vein, and I think it's important to make that distinction. The author Jonathan Pennington says this about these blessing statements. He says, the point is that Makarios' blessing statements are proclamations of a state of flourishing, not pronouncements of what to do and to be to enjoy God's favor, And I think that's a crucial distinction for us to understand. They're proclamations of a state of flourishing, not pronouncements of what to do to get God's favor. And so that's why this same scholar, Jonathan Pennington, uses and actually translates makarios with the word flourishing. It says, flourishing are the poor in spirit. And it kind of helps us see and understand what's going on. And what he, what he, what this man actually argues is that Jesus, throughout this whole sermon, is seeking to answer this, this age-old human question, this question rooted in where do we find happiness? What is the good life, and how do we live in it? So these Beatitudes, Jesus is saying that if you want to see someone who can find happiness, who can find wholeness, ones who will experience true human flourishing, then these are the ones to look at which then becomes pretty confusing when we actually begin to look at the Beatitudes themselves. But Jesus is not pronouncing a blessing over the people like God saying, I will bless you, but rather He is describing a state of blessedness or happiness that is available to those who have found and realized to embody these realities. So ultimately, what is a Beatitude? It's a statement declaring someone As on the true way of being that will result in happiness and human flourishing. A Beatitude is a statement declaring someone is on the true way of being that will result in happiness and human flourishing. So, the next question, hopefully, these things will come together as as we move on. But the next question that we have to ask is where do we get off track? In reading a passage such as this, where might we, might we kind of stray off track of what Jesus is actually getting at? And I have a couple things. First of all, one way we get off track is that we, we see them merely as virtues to work on. We see them maybe as Jesus describing his kingdom values. And therefore, these are things that we need to, we need to improve on and work on. We need to be more humble, more pure, more merciful, more peaceful. All good things. And there's a, there's a very real sense in which Jesus is setting these things forth in that way. But Jesus is not here giving commands. These are not simply imperatives to follow as if we just need to somehow become better people by doing certain things. And ultimately, as you look at these, these aren't really things you can just generate on your own, right? I mean, how would you even begin to become poor in spirit? Just sell everything you have and, and get rid of that? Or, or even... Nowhere does Jesus actually say for us to go and like ask people to persecute us or to to beat us up, right? So these aren't just things that you go and and do, but these are are realities that that we're called to embody, that that are born out of this way of seeing the world differently. So that, yes, there is a sense in which we are called to evaluate our lives against these. We're to ask if we are merciful people, if we pursue peace, but that is not the primary emphasis that Jesus is setting forth. The next way that we get off track is that that we view them as simple cause and effect statements, right? So so we we see them and and we read them in this way that God will bless me if I perform actions that represent these qualities. Right? If we if, if and this this is where it stems back to that idea of understanding blessing. So these can become kind of trite, if I do this then God will do this type of thing for me. As if God is some kind of cosmic vending machine and you kind of pay with the right virtuous behaviors, and then you get some kind of prize out of the machine. And sometimes we can begin to read them like that, and we, we slip into legalism. That's not what Jesus is offering us in this passage. And that's why it's so crucial to distinguish between a pronouncement of God's blessing on someone and a declaration of a state of being that someone is in. And one thing that can help us as we, as we read these and interpret them is, is there within each of these statements there's kind of a connecting word between the first half of the statement and then kind of the second half. And oftentimes it's translated as for. But rather than, rather than using for, what if we shifted it to because? Which then kind of turns things around where the second part of the blessing is what's emphasized and it becomes the cause or the grounds for that which is being taught in the first half of the statement. So then it becomes... Not, if you are meek, then you will inherit the earth, but rather because your inheritance is the earth, you will be characterized by meekness now. So Jesus, we we have to, we have to read them in the way that Jesus is describing and setting these things forth to us. And we get off track if we see them as simple, if you do this, then God gives you this. And then the last way we get off track is that we sometimes maybe view them individually. We kind of pick out one of these beatitudes and kind of see ourselves and maybe pat ourselves on the back and say, hey, I I do pretty good in this area. You know, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm merciful towards people. I have compassion towards people. But these aren't meant to be just kind of picked apart as any kind of checklist, but these are, these are meant to be seen as a, as a, as a whole. My wife and I uh, have been looking at a lot of flooring options in the last uh, week or so. We want, we're going to redo some flooring in our house. And so I I went out and I, I, I got... You know, at first I thought it'd be an easy decision, but there's so many options, so I began to kind of look at all what was out there, so I began to take samples from stores and bring them home, and we have this whole table of samples. The problem is that we need like 600 square feet of flooring, and I have a sample that's like this big. So I have this four by four inch sample that I'm trying to picture across my whole floor. Well, it looks good here, but is it going to look good everywhere else? And sometimes we kind of do that with these Statements like this, we kind of look at one part and we're like, "Oh, this this area of my life looks good. This is I'm doing well here," but we don't see this holistic picture that Jesus is calling us to. So we're, we're not meant to view them merely individually, but but we have to take them as a whole. So those are some ways that, that we might get off track. So as we've as we've asked some of these questions, I think then we're we're more prepared to ask kind of the foundational question that Jesus is setting forth, and that's this. Who are the blessed ones? Who are those who will experience the flourishing life? And what if if we turn this around, actually, and kind of ask that question in our day? How would that question be answered within our culture, within our society, within our own lives and families? What is the path of flourishing? How would that be described I tried to come up with maybe some that might ring true within our culture today. It's an interesting exercise to kind of think through, something to, to reflect on. What are current cultural beatitudes? Maybe something like this. Happy are those who have a secure job and sound retirement plan, for they will feel safe. Maybe happy are those who know what they want out of life and pursue it, for they will find personal fulfillment. Maybe happy are those who have meaningful relationships with their family, for they will avoid loneliness. Maybe happy are those who live true to who they believe themselves to be, for they will find their true identity. Happy are those who overcome all forms of oppression, for they will be freed. What is the beatitude that governs your life? What is the path of flourishing that you say, I'll be happy in this situation, lead to flourishing because of this thing that I'm longing for. And if we view those over against what Jesus sets forth, it, 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 we see how Jesus is causing us and calling us to view things differently than we naturally view them. And so quickly, I just want to, I just want to skip over these and, and, and touch just briefly on these, these nine blessing statements. Some some would argue that there's actually only eight Beatitudes and the, the ninth is kind of an expansion because the first and the eighth kind of have the same kind of ending statement on them, that, uh, that, the, that to theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so I don't know if it matters whether we say there's eight or nine, I'm going to go with nine, but uh, we don't have time to, to dig into each of these. So I'm just going to briefly kind of highlight what Jesus is getting at with each of these as he describes to us who are those who experience the flourishing life and why it is that they can do so. And and with each of these statements, the second part of the statement is so important to hold on to because, you know, almost all of these conditions are negative. They're not necessarily things that we would naturally uphold as good things per se. It's not that being poor or being sad or being hungry or being persecuted are intrinsically virtuous in and of themselves, Right? But it's the promise or the declaration of the second part of each of these statements that defines the way in which happiness and flourishing can be found in the initial condition that's described. So remember who Jesus is speaking to, who is hearing these statements. It's everyday people like us. It's the sick, it's the poor, the rejected and marginalized of society. He's speaking to them and at times describing their condition and inviting them to experience blessing and telling them why. And so he begins and said, blessed are the poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Because who wants that to be something that describes them? And this is not just a financial snapshot necessarily, but it describes those who are well aware of how little they have, how insignificant they are. This even implies a recognition of spiritual poverty, that I have nothing in and of myself that's good and valuable and virtuous. It's not the wealthy, it's not the elite, it's not the theologians or the, the well-educated, and it's often those things, those who are, who are rich, both spiritually and financially, who actually struggle to see their need of Christ's kingdom. But Jesus is speaking to those who clearly see their need. And when you're in a position of of, of need from outside of yourself, Jesus is saying you are the ones who are in a position ready to receive what I am offering. And those who have a humility of spirit are the ones to whom the kingdom of heaven is promised because they are ready to receive it. It's not the haughty or the arrogant Or the self assured, but it's those who see their need who are ready to receive Jesus. He goes on and says that blessed are those who mourn because they will be comforted. What's so great about crying? Jesus is describing those who have a recognition of the brokenness of the world in which we live, those who have experienced the sorrow that comes from living in this tragic condition. Of a fallen world. So, those who mourn are the ones who have lost loved ones, who have walked through cancer treatment, who have experienced natural disasters and broken relationships. Those who have witnessed and and lived through and then maybe even seen from afar a mass shooting that seems to happen over and over. And there's tears that are shed and crying over just the broken condition of this world. Those who don't turn a blind eye to it and just try to block it out and ignore it in our comfortable, beautiful city. But that we see it, we recognize it, and we're able to mourn. He says, Those who mourn will be comforted. And that hope brings about a state of flourishing that can be experienced now, even in the midst of sorrow. And this is a flourishing that is unseen by all those else who hurt, but who have no ultimate source of comfort. But those who will be comforted by God can mourn and see the world and recognize it and still be on a path and know fullness of life. He goes on and says that the meek will inherit the earth and they live in a state of flourishing. Jesus is presenting those who have a proper view of themselves. There's this aspect of humility, the opposite of a look-at-me attitude. The ones who have a right view of themselves, not just in a self-deprecating kind of way. A meek person can actually be very powerful and very important, but they don't see themselves like that. They see themselves in a a right relationship to God. So they're not looking to to lift themselves up, to, to clamor for attention and for praise, But there's an attitude of of humility. There's no self-worship with the meek. And these are the ones to whom God will give the earth. And this is not a claiming of the earth as some kind of powerful coercion or takeover. But this is because it's an inheritance given from God. When you know that you have done nothing to earn it and God has just gifted it to you. You have nothing to boast about. And meekness is characterized within that person. He goes on and says that, that, that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they will be satisfied. And as I thought on this one, you've you got to reflect and, and kind of look at who Jesus is speaking to. We kind of often say that we're hungry or we say we're thirsty, but but we do not really know and experience true hunger and true thirst, right? Hunger for us is like, ah, oh, I'm hungry, give me a bag of Doritos. Something like that. Or, or my kids, you know, my, my kid Peyton, every night it seems like he'll come down and be like, I'm so thirsty, I'm dying. And he's like grabbing his throat. He just needs a drink of water. I'm like, yeah, not really, but sure, go back to bed. But, but there's this, 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 this sense that who Jesus is speaking to in this day and age, like, many of them were just scraping by. Maybe hadn't eaten for weeks. For, for, for a long period of time, there's, there's, there's true hunger being experienced by this crowd. There's thirstiness, because they don't, they don't have five taps in their house. But, but there's, there's true hunger. So when Jesus says, let's those who hunger and thirst, these people know what that means. And he says, you hunger and thirst for righteousness. Again, he's describing those who, who see the corruption, the abuse, the injustice of the world, and they desire and long for change. They long for something else. They've seen the ravages of sin in their own life, the ravages of sin within their community, and they're done with it. They're over it. This can't just keep going on like this. Those who long for personal purity, who who hunger for justice in the world... Jesus says that those who have an aching desire for wrongs to be made right will be satisfied. In the kingdom that He is announcing, satisfaction for the hunger for righteousness will be found. And this ultimate satisfaction of justice, this justice that is promised, what it means for us is that that we're not disillusioned in our pursuit of justice, because God will bring about perfect justice ultimately one day. And so now, as those who are receiving this kingdom, we live lives that are pursuing this transformation even now. So we pursue transformation in our own lives to see righteousness formed within this church, within this community, not as as something that we have attained, but something that God will give us we, we see the injustices of the world and the, 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 the prejudice and the, the, the oppression that happens throughout our world, and we, we long to see it change, not as some kind of social justice warrior, but as those who have first and foremost tasted the justice of God offered to us in our own lives. We have a foretaste to offer of the kingdom that one day will be fully realized. Do you hunger and thirst for Righteousness? It says, blessed are the merciful, they will receive mercy. Why will they receive it? Because God offers it freely to them, not because they've earned it or deserve it. But blessed are the merciful, those who understand that they have been given much mercy. If you ask my wife about my driving, if she's honest, she'll say, there's plenty of room for improvement. Um, I'll be honest, I'm I often get distracted or just not paying attention, and so I'm the guy who doesn't change lanes early enough, so I end up having to cut somebody off to, to make my turn, or I, I don't pay attention at the four-way stop, and so I get confused about whose turn it is, and I got to go, and so, but I, but I always want people to like kind of be patient with me and just put up with my, you know, poor driving, but man, when I'm out there, I can be super critical of everybody else, everybody else is in my way, why did they do that, and which is always good for me when I'm driving with my wife. And why don't you use a turn signal? You never use a turn signal. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, but I, I want mercy, but I'm so slow to extend it to others. But, but Jesus is saying that we, those who recognize that God is giving mercy to them, should understand what it's like to give and extend mercy to others. To see those who are hurting, the downcast. To reach out to them, to care for them, to be patient with others. They realize that they are not the final judge, but they too are in need of mercy to be shown to them. Blessed are the merciful. It says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. I love this one. This describes those who are authentic, that there's no need to put up a front to pretend that they're something that they're not, or to perform to make people believe that they're, they're better than what they are. They're honest about who they are, and their actions match their inside. And this is a beatitude that's going to be expanded on multiple times throughout Jesus' sermon that we'll look at this summer. This true authentic, authenticity within a person. There's just a purity of heart. You know there's no deception and no lying but they're authentic. I love how how the second one says that, that they shall see God. Those who know that they will see God also know that there's no use trying to hide because He sees them fully. Before the eyes of God, we are fully exposed. There's no use pretending. And if that's the one we long to see, then we pursue and manifest just a purity and an authenticity of our heart. It says, blessed are the peacemakers, because they will be called the sons of God. Peacemakers are not simply those who seek to avoid conflict, right? It's not just that you want to avoid it at all costs. But actually, those who are willing to step into it. Those who believe that reconciliation is possible and desirable. Those who don't just sit there and kind of lob accusations across the, at the other side and kind of shut off their ears. But these are people who seek to listen and help others to listen. Don't we need more peacemakers in our world today? Any issue, you can just find lobbing back and forth, whether it's social media or whatever context. It's just everybody pick a side and then let's argue. Let's argue over it. But peacemakers are those who say, "Hey, I may not agree with you. We we might not agree, but let's let's talk through it. Let's listen." Let me understand where you're coming from. Let's, 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 let's work through this. And peacemaking is dangerous business sometimes because sometimes when you're in the middle, you actually take shots from both sides, right? But Jesus says those who are peacemakers will be called the sons of God. And in this context, in this culture, being, recognizing someone as, the, as a son of someone is often attached to what they do, right? Right? I mean, blacksmiths raised blacksmiths, and bakers raised bakers. So it was always a, a son of, you know, whatever, whatever like work or occupation your father did that, that described you. So what it's saying is that, that we will be called the sons of God as God is the ultimate peacemaker, as we are called and exhibit peacemaking in our lives, relationships in this world. We are exhibiting the characteristics of God. We are acting as the sons, the followers of God. Moves on. It says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who are beaten and abused, criticized because of their desire for righteousness, for their desire to do the right thing, they can flourish because they belong to Christ's kingdom. Above all the Beatitudes in, in this one, we see this mystery of flourishing even amidst terrible circumstances. It's not saying there's, there's something valuable in itself about being abused. He's saying you can flourish even in that because you have this other reality that you are holding on to. And those who know that they belong to another world can endure being outcasts in this one. Then we have this ninth Beatitude, which is similar and maybe even an expansion of this eighth, where it says... When you, when you're reviled, when you're persecuted and spoken evil of on my account, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. When you belong to Jesus' kingdom and you begin to live for things that are outside of this world, the things that we naturally want to avoid at all costs, things like criticism, slander, being despised, when people attribute things to us that, that we know aren't true and we just want to defend ourselves. And they, No, I, I don't believe that, but, but people label us as, as this or that because they just misunderstand. And Jesus says, like, that's okay. Rejoice and be glad. It indicates that what you're following is worth it. Something real to it, I'm telling you. All of these things that are endured on account of Jesus... So, it's not just that we're an unloving, self righteous people, but if we're actually enduring these things on account of Jesus because we follow Jesus. And he says we can face that with rejoicing and gladness because it indicates that there's something much greater that we are anticipating. So, here we have these nine blessings that are announced to Jesus' followers. We could spend a lot more time thinking through and reflecting and looking and describing each of these characteristics. And even even thinking about where we fall short, where we struggle and how we can grow in these things. But the thing about these Beatitudes is that, again, they aren't meant for us to look at as a checklist, but they they are a call and an invitation to us to meditate on, to think over, to reflect on over and over. To almost stare closely, to cross our eyes until we begin to see the picture of the kingdom that is being offered. And so then, as we close, we ask one final question. How do we do this? How do we become and embody these things? How do we grow in this? And as we begin to look closely at these things and and we begin to pull the image back away and we look into this hidden kingdom, what is the image that begins to appear before us? Who do you know that can be described as poor in spirit? What do they say about Jesus? Can anything good come from Nazareth? That insignificant, meaningless city? This, this place that, that, that nothing good comes from. Who do we see mourning and weeping upon arriving at the tomb of a deceased friend? So we see Jesus weeping at the tomb of Lazarus. Who of all humans embodies meekness? Not a weakness, but a, but a gentleness while possessing strength. He was the king who rode into the city on a donkey. He was the the Lord and the the leader, the teacher, who got down and washed his disciples' feet. Did not Jesus hunger and thirst for righteousness? As he was moved with compassion on these people who were experiencing tragedy and loss and oppression. As he went in and cleansed the temple and said, this should not happen here. He longed for righteousness to be found. How merciful was Jesus as He walked around from city to city and He looked at the, the downcast, the downtrodden, everyone else, the ones who everyone else around ignored and didn't see. Jesus saw them. He knelt down to them. He reached out to them. And then as He hung on a cross, what did Jesus say? He said, God, be merciful to these ones who are mocking me who have put me here, because they don't know what they do. Jesus defines purity of heart as the one who, when He was tempted in the wilderness, didn't didn't succumb to that, but He he leaned on the Word of God. And He was pure and did the right thing. Jesus was the ultimate peacemaker. And as He came to reconcile us to the Father with His own life, as, as we stood as rebels against our Creator and rightfully condemned under the wrath of God, Jesus comes and stands in the middle and takes that on Himself and is the peacemaker that unites us back and reconciles us to God. And Jesus, though He was sinless, though He was righteous, He was the one who was beaten, who was bruised, and who was crushed for us. And as we look deeply at these nine qualities, the image we see, we begin to see as our Savior. And in these teachings, Jesus is not just a virtue or wisdom guru that our world wants to make Him out to be. The world will love the Beatitudes. These things are great. Jesus is such a great teacher, but He's not just a guru offering us some kind of ancient wisdom, but He's one who embodies what He calls us to be. And he invites us to be united to him so that his fullness can become ours. The wholeness that we all long for can only be found in him. And the path to flourishing and happiness is only obtained by following him into his kingdom. And this is what he is announcing throughout this sermon. It's what we're going to continue to look at in the coming weeks. And this is what he invites you and I to experience. I read this week, one, one writer said this about the Beatitudes. He says, these things work like a plow in our lives and in our hearts. As our hearts and lives become hardened and dried out by the heat of this world, we need words like this to break up the soil, to turn over our misguided conceptions of the good life, of where happiness is found, and to be able to plant then within a new soil, these realities that will lead us to true flourishing. And so if we read these things and we're convicted, and we say, yeah, you know what? This picture and this image doesn't, doesn't look a lot like my life. It doesn't look like me. I fail in these, these areas all the time. I'm not merciful. I don't want to extend peace to others. I don't want to care about those who are in need. What Jesus is inviting you to is not just to improve your ethics or to be more virtuous, but He's inviting you ultimately to receive His kingdom. The same thing that, the, that that crowd is being offered. And receiving His kingdom first starts by receiving Him. And is this not one worth following, worth giving our entire lives to? And so the challenge within this, this text for us is to reflect to continue to meditate on these things. Let them, let them plow over our hearts this week. And as we continue in this sermon series, let us continue to, 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 to reflect on these realities. So do you see yourself in the crowd? Do you see that Jesus is talking to you in these statements and declaring that we can only find the flourishing life that we long for by following Him into His kingdom and being transformed into His likeness? Let's pray together.